you so much, Mark. I'm telling you what, when the music matches with the sermon that well, it makes my job a whole lot easier. If you would turn in your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Uh, We are actually going to finish chapter 12 today. We will be done with it today. Already, yes, we have been here for three weeks. We will we will finish chapter twelve today. Um, any of y'all do any shopping with Amazon? Any of y'all at all? Yes. Where's my Amazon people? Yes. Um, Amazon's great, except when it's not. Um, a couple weeks ago, I ordered, of all things, some uh, some aftershave from Amazon because I'm a I'm a shaving geek. I like to use the old school brush and the soap and the. <coughs> You know, the, 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 you remember the, the old-timey razors choking little butterfly doors and you drop a little thing? I like using one of those. And uh, I ordered some aftershave. Well, they delivered it, and when I opened it, it wasn't the correct stuff. So I closed it back up. I took it to the UPS store, sent it back, and so they sent me the correct stuff. But this time when they delivered it, I opened the package. The package, by the way, was beautiful. Opened it. The top was screwed off of it, and half of it was like poured out in the box. So I closed it back up, put it in the box, and called Amazon again. And they said, we've tried, we've failed twice, just keep it, throw it away, do what you want, we'll refund you. I'm like, great. So this makes me think for today, safety in delivery is important. Just getting somebody from point A to point B is not good enough. Getting them there safely is key. Getting something from point A to point B is not appropriately delivered unless they arrive safe. Uh, When God promises to deliver His people, He doesn't promise to get us from point A to point B with a damage may be incurred along the way. No. When you come out where God puts you, you're going to end up there exactly the way He wants you to arrive, whole and safe. So we're going to look this morning at some ways that God delivers his children. And we're going to look at it in context of someone who really does not want God to deliver his children. Um, We have been dealing with the cosmic war between Satan and God um, for the last three weeks in chapter 12. Because that's what John, the author of the book of Revelation, has been talking about. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, even though we're only going to cover verses 13 through 17 today, we're going to read the entirety of the chapter because it works as a unit. So Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. Remember that verse, by the way. He was cast to earth, and his angels were cast out with him. 
Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Excuse me. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. And this is today's passage. Now when the dragon saw he had been cast to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to appreciate all the different ways you deliver your children and trust you to get us to where you want us to be safely. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So let's talk for just a minute about chapter 12 as we close it out today. Remember that chapter 12 functions kind of like a Bible sandwich. Okay, so verses 1 through 6, think of kind of like the top bun. Verses 13 through 17 are kind of like the bottom bun. And verses six through, or verses 7 through 12 are kind of like the meat in the middle. That's because verses 1 through 6, John says, are signs. He says, I saw a great sign appear in heaven in verse 1, and then another sign appear in heaven in verse 3. That's John's signal to you as a biblical author that he is using symbolic language. He is referring to real events, but he is using symbolic language to impart meaning there so that you can, you can get the full picture of what's going on. Uh, In verses 1 through 6, we have several symbols that we need to go over because they're going to rear their heads again in 13 through 17. Who is this woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and 12 stars? Well, without getting into and preaching my sermon from two weeks ago again, there is a good reason to believe that this is a woman symbolizing the entirety of the nation of Israel. Revelation as a whole is very concerned with the nation of Israel. um, And this is her. How do I know? Because she gives birth to a child. And this child is destined to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now this child is Jesus. Jesus is the promised child, the promised Messiah, the promised ruler who will sit on the throne of David forever that came from Israel. He is the Son of God but born as a man through the nation of Israel. So the woman is Israel. The child is the the Son of God, Jesus. And then who is this dragon? Well, we don't even have to wonder who this dragon is because John tells us in verse 9 exactly who this dragon is. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. What we get in verses 1 through 6 is an account of really thousands of years. That you get from the very beginning, you get God's plan to save humanity through the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ and Satan opposing the plan of God at every turn unsuccessfully. And then in verses 7 through 12, you see a final assault of Satan on heaven that he tries 
foolishly to attack God head on and he loses. That Michael and Michael the archangel and his forces under the authority of God fight back against Satan and cast him out and cast him to the earth. And then verse 13 where we are today starts with Satan's response to being permanently evicted from the heavenly realm. Now, to understand kind of how this works, this was interesting in my study this week, and I'm, I'm tending to believe it to be true the more I read this. Thus far through our study of the book of Revelation, you can kind of divide it into thirds. Uh, chapters 1 through 5 are, is Jesus communicating with present day churches. Churches that were current at the time of the composition of this book, which was sometime in the 90s A.D. So many of those churches are long gone. Uh, but those letters do apply to us, and we've done that. Verses, or chapters 6 through 11 are a series of events and judgments on the earth. And chapters 12 through 14 loop back around to verse, chapter 6 and give you that series of events except from Satan's point of view. So in chapter 12, you're seeing a long history of the earth from Satan's point of view. And y'all, he's on a cosmic losing streak. That's what he's in. When you look, he has wanted to thwart the plan of God by stopping the birth of this child from Israel. Did not work. Could Satan prevent the birth of Jesus in his life? No. And he tried. If you go back and you look in the Gospels, you'll see that Herod ended up killing every male child two years and under in the city of Jerusalem because he was afraid of Jesus. Chapter 12 tells me that was at the behest of Satan. Satan attempted to kill Jesus before his earthly ministry ever got started. He failed. He attempted to kill Israel. He failed. It is one of the greatest miracles in the history of the world that the nation of Israel exists today. Never has an ethnic group like Israel been dispersed as far over the earth as they have and have still maintained their ethnic, religious identity like Israel has. Satan has not been able to destroy them and now they're actually back in their homeland. Satan has not been able to do that. Satan finally tries to assault God at the seat of his power in heaven and fails. He is cast out of heaven and is cast to earth. So he's had his first defeat in heaven in which he was cast out and his angels along with him. He has failed to prevent Jesus' birth. He has failed to defeat Michael and his angels. And so now... In verse 13, having been cast out, we're going to look at how God delivers His children by removing them from danger. All we're going to talk about today is how God repeatedly defeats Satan by delivering those who belong to Him from Satan's grasp. So in verse 13, we're going to see how God delivers His children by removing them from danger. In verse 13, we see that the dragon saw that he had been cast to earth. Does Satan ever take a break? No. Satan and his demons never take a break. They're in constant rebellion against God and so constantly hate those who belong to Him. They want nothing more than to destroy us. So immediately upon seeing He has been cast to earth, He persecutes the woman who gave birth to the male child. In other words, He sets out to try and finally, ultimately destroy Israel. The damage to Him has already been done, but He's a sore loser. I'm a football fan. Any of y'all football fans? Yes, please. I'm not alone. Yes, I see those. Hey, Billy Graham, I see that hand. Um, 
Does anything annoy you more than when a team is just getting blown out and their coach waits for the last 30 seconds and takes all of his timeouts just to drag the game on, just to be a sore loser? That it's over, everybody watching knows it's over, there ain't no coming back, he's just being, being rude. That's kind of Satan. He already knows he's lost. He can't do anything about it. But he's going to be a sore loser. So even though the damage from Israel's already been done, he sets out to destroy her. But look. He sets out to persecute the woman who gave birth to the male child, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the dragon. Is that what your Bible says? It says from the presence of the dragon? Oh no, it says from the presence of the serpent. Your pastor believes that the words of Scripture matter. The words that the biblical authors chose to use under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit matter. uh, John has been referring to Satan as the dragon for almost this entire chapter except for one mention of him being the serpent in verse 9. Why, for verses 13 through 17, does he universally, except for one case, refer to him as the serpent? Why does he change words? Why are we dealing with a serpent now? Well, I can think of one famous portion in Scripture where there is a serpent. And that would be Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember way, 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 way back in the Garden of Eden... Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the beasts of the field. And he's the one that slithers up and says, Hey Eve, how are you doing today? Well, hey talking snake, I've never seen a snake like you before. What are you doing? Oh, nothing. Did God tell you you really couldn't eat from every tree of the garden? Well, no. He told me we couldn't eat of this tree, nor should we touch it lest we die. The serpent goes, Oh no, Eve. You will not surely die. God just told you not to eat from this tree because if you eat from this tree, you will be like Him, knowing good and evil. So when Eve saw the fruit of the tree, that it was pleasant to the eyes, that it was good for food, and that it was desirable to make one wise, she took at the fruit of the tree and ate and gave to her husband Adam with her, and he ate. And then their eyes were opened, and they saw that they were naked, and they went and hid themselves. You remember all that? Way back at the beginning of your Bible? The serpent. And then God walks in the garden in the cool of the day and He calls out and He says, Adam, where are you? Well, we hid ourselves because we knew that we were naked. Who told you that you were naked, Adam? Did you eat of the fruit of the tree that I commanded you you should not eat? Well, my wife that you gave me, she took of the fruit of the tree and she gave it to me. And I ate. This is her fault. Eve... The talking snake did it. He deceived me. The serpent deceived me. But when God gets to the serpent, God doesn't ask the serpent any questions. Why? Because He already knows the serpent. He knew the serpent long before Adam and Eve did. And God curses the serpent. And in Genesis 3.14, He says, So the Lord said to the serpent... 
Because you have done this, you are more cursed than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Why does John use the phrase serpent instead of dragon? I think he's pulling us back to Genesis 3 because Satan has been cast down once again. Satan has a history. Any time he tries to rear his head against God's plan, God's plan, God throws him down over and over and over and over and over again. Think of this. Satan was created as an angel. Before he rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven, he lived in the heavenly realms. He beheld the face of God. And he rebelled and God cast him out of heaven. He rebelled again. God cast him to his belly and said, You will eat dust all the days of your life. You deceptive, wicked serpent. Any of y'all ever watched National Geographic? Any of y'all ever seen it? Have y'all ever seen those amazing shots of an eagle swooping down and grabbing the snake with his claws? Have you ever seen that? Do you know that eagles are natural predators of serpents? What does God give this woman to escape the serpent? The wings of an eagle. Satan, who is so disgusted with these tiny little fleshly creatures called humans because they bear God's image, who would joke with them that they should rise and they should be like God when really he wants to see them cast down into the pit, finds himself in Revelation chapter 12 on his belly eating dust again when the woman he wants to destroy he sees rise. She's given wings to escape him. Y'all, I don't care how bad a serpent tries to snap at an eagle, the serpent will never get the eagle because the eagle can fly and the serpent is stuck on his belly in the dust. He can't help it. She's given the two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she's nourished for time, times, and half a time. Eagle's wings are used throughout Scripture As an illustration of the deliverance of God. Exodus 19.4 says, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Isaiah 40 verse 31 says, Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. They are a common biblical motif symbolizing the supernatural deliverance from God. And when I say supernatural, I don't mean that He reaches down and makes you disappear in one place and appear in another. Could He do that if He wanted to? Yes. Does He typically? No. But, Christian, have you ever experienced God taking you miraculously out of one situation and moving you to somewhere else? That a series of events occurs that just do not have any reasonable explanation other than God just must not have wanted me here at this time so He orchestrated things to move me somewhere else. Have you ever experienced anything remotely like that? I have. That in this particular case in chapter 12, God removes Israel from danger. Satan, you're not going anywhere. Israel, I'm taking her out. She's out of your range anymore. You're not allowed to mess with her anymore. You stay in the dust. She gets the wings of an eagle. You cannot reach her anymore. 
God is our great deliverer. And there is no greater deliverer for us as a church than Jesus. Who is that? Do you know that the serpent that in Revelation 12, who is trying to destroy Israel, is also trying to destroy us? He hates us. Why? Because we bear the image of God. As a church, we remind him that Christ is victorious and Satan is a sore loser. And he does not want us to experience any of the good things of God. So he does his best to destroy us. And until we knew Jesus Christ, we walked on this earth dead in our sins and trespasses, walking according to the power of the prince of the power of the air, dead in our sins and our lusts and our desires of our flesh. That's who we were. But then Christ came and He shed His blood on the cross for us and He was buried and He rose to new life and ascended back to His Father as our intercessor and then sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in in us and He has set us free from the dominion of Satan, from the fear of death and from the eternal penalty of sin so that Satan has no power over us anymore. Colossians 1.13 says He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That God has taken us as a church. If you know Jesus Christ, if you have a personal relationship with Him, God has removed you from Satan's range of being able to do real damage. He can annoy you He can hurt you temporally. But if you're a Christian, what's the worst He can do? Kill you? Church, to be absent from the body is to be present with the... Maybe some of y'all aren't. Original Star Wars trilogy, 4, 5, and 6. Anybody ever seen it? Yes, we got deep theology right now. We're in Star Wars. Y'all remember the end of the movie where Obi-Wan and Darth Vader are fighting? And Darth Vader wants so bad that if you haven't seen this, you really owe it to yourself. You're going to miss a lot of my illustrations if you don't watch Star Wars. (laughs) Obi-Wan and Darth Vader are fighting and Darth Vader wants to kill him. Wants to kill him so bad. Obi-Wan's not attacking him. He's just knocking him off. And he says, don't do this. Don't do this. Why? Fight back. Fight back. He goes, if you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you could ever possibly imagine. Do you know that when Satan kills you, all he does is send you into the presence of Jesus so that one day when that final divine judgment happens, there will be one more witness standing before Jesus saying, yeah, that's the serpent. Yeah, that's him. Jesus, let me tell you, I know you already know, but let me tell you in my own voice. He did this to me. 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 And Satan's going to get a dose of his own medicine. He's, uh, he's been accusing the brethren day and night for forever. Well, one day the brethren are going to accuse him. He doesn't have an advocate. All Satan can do is temporarily... Delay his ultimate fate. And one day the church will see him defeated. He can't stop it. 
Jesus is our great deliverer who removes us from the danger of the serpent. And God can deliver His children by removing us from situations as well. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That God has taken us in Jesus Christ out of the darkness and into His light. That God sometimes delivers you by taking you out of a dangerous situation and you need to give God glory for His mercy. Give God glory for His mercy. So God may deliver you by removing you from danger. And second, God may deliver you by removing danger from you. Look at verse, uh, look at the next verse we've got right that we've got next down here. Verse 15. <clears throat> so first, the serpent has set out to pursue, chase, hunt down this woman that we know we know is Israel. This who this is who uh, the woman symbolizes is Israel. The serpent has set out to hunt her, but God has removed her from his presence so that he cannot get to her. Direct attacks are not going to fly. They're not going to work. Satan's not close enough where he can do that anymore. So what does he try? He tries an indirect attack. Uh, The serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Now let's talk about this. Remember, this is a sign chapter. There's a lot of symbolism going on here. Revelation can be difficult because you have to figure out what's a symbol, what's literal. Satan is not literally a serpent. Satan is a demon. In Genesis 3, he took the form of a literal serpent. But Satan himself is not literally a serpent. Israel is not literally an individual woman. It is a nation. I do not believe that Israel is literally going to sprout wings of eagles and fly off somewhere. They are a symbol of God supernaturally delivering her. So if Satan is not literally a serpent, Israel is not literally an individual woman... They are not literally going to grow wings of an eagle. Then this flood is also probably not literal water. But these symbols do represent real literal things. The symbol of the serpent represents a literal Satan. Okay? The symbol of the woman represents a literal Israel. The symbol of these wings represent literal deliverance. So this symbol of a flood must represent a real danger. A real attack of Satan, and we just got to figure out what that attack is so that this makes sense. Well, there are a couple of potential answers. What comes out of the mouth of Satan throughout the entire Bible? Lies. Lies. Which, by the way, this is a very reasonable answer. Because throughout history, go back, read your... I did not actually have enough room to write it on here. It is crazy how throughout history, no one nation has been lied about and had violence come about as a result more so than the Jews. Think back, the, 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 most, the most recent version of it is the Third Reich under Hitler during World War II. Now, Germany had a lot of problems coming out of World War I. Their economy was garbage. There was nothing to speak of. And they didn't see any hope. 
And then on comes, on comes this uh, charismatic, enthusiastic leader named Adolf. And he rallies the German people behind him and suggests that really the Jews are the problem. That they're the reason the economy is bad. That they're an inferior race. And if we could just wipe them them out, then we would ascend to the next level of human evolution. So thus began Hitler's final solution resulting in what we call the Holocaust, in which six million plus Jews died. Have you ever heard the phrase blood libel? Blood libel is one of the most heinous lies that have ever been told about the Jewish people, in which it is a lie was told starting back in the medieval era, during the Crusades, that Jews used the blood of Christians in their Passover meals. And so that painted them as murderers. So when you think somebody's a murderer, what do you do? You kill them. That lie has been repeated throughout years. There were lies that Jews poisoned wells and that's why people were getting sick. This has happened starting in the medieval era and moving forward. And it always seems to come back to the Jews. Why always the Jews? Why always Israel? Why did Rome persecute them? And Persia persecute them? And Syria persecute them? And Assyria persecute them? Why the Third Reich? Why the constant undertone of anti-Semitism that has lasted throughout the history of the world? I can tell you why. Because the serpent hates Israel. And the serpent's chief weapon, not just against Israel, but against everybody, is lies. Jesus says in John 8 that Satan is the father of lies. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own resources. Because he is a liar and the father of it. So potentially it's lies stoking up people to attack Israel. But second, and they're not mutually exclusive, they could go together, a flood of wicked people under the serpent's leadership. Throughout Scripture, the term flood can be used for wickedness or wicked people. Psalm 18, 3-4, David says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. The pangs of death surrounded me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. Talking about people. Wicked people. Enemies. In verses 16 and 17, also in Psalm 18, when God delivers him, he says, He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for there were too strong for me. That Satan, I believe what John is communicating here through lies and through demonic inspiration, since he cannot directly attack Israel, he influences people who walk under the dominion of the prince of the power of the air, who do not know Christ, who are easily deceived and have always been deceived by Satan to do his bidding and go after Israel and attack her. But it doesn't work. His cosmic losing streak gets extended by one more. Because what happens? Verse 16, But the earth helped the woman. 
And it opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Well, that's interesting. The earth opened its mouth. So remember, we're not talking literally anymore. Granted, in Scripture, the earth has literally opened its mouth and swallowed the enemies of Israel before. It did. It happened with the rebellion at Korah. And it also happened back in Exodus. When Pharaoh came after the children of Israel, he did not want to let them go. Y'all remember, we've referenced him the last couple weeks uh, when, when God sent Charlton Heston to, let, to get the people out of Israel. And he stood before Pharaoh and he said in that booming voice, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, I do not know your God, neither will I let your people go. And then God just pelted Egypt with plague after plague after plague after plague after plague. And finally Pharaoh goes, okay, they can go now. After the death of the firstborn. So Israel is standing on the border of the Red Sea. And then like every other ruler influenced by Satan in the history of the world, he goes, you know what? I don't want to let God have what he wants. Why should I let them go? Get my chariot ready. Get my horse ready. Get the army ready. We're going and we're bringing our slaves back. And God slams down the pillar of fire to keep them from coming up to Israel and tells Moses, Moses, stretch out your staff over these waters. And God parts the sea. And Israel walks through on dry land. Well, about the time Israel's getting ready to finish crossing, the pillar of fire lifts. And Pharaoh sees his slaves about to cross into freedom. And he says, not on my watch. And he drives the Egyptian military headlong into the dry land with the sea standing up like a wall on either side of them. Now why you would do this when God has already proved His immense overwhelming power to you is beyond me. I don't know about you, but I would be somewhat scared to walk in between two giant walls of water. But Pharaoh was not having a good day, and he decided to do so. And then on the other side, God says, Moses, stretch out your staff over the waters. And when he does so, the water covered over Pharaoh and all of the Egyptian military. And then you get in Exodus 15 what we call the Song of Moses. And listen to what was saying. Exodus 15, 12. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. That God supernaturally removed the danger from Israel. That they were where they were. But the danger was no longer there. He did not move Israel this time. He moved the danger. That God sometimes delivers by moving you out of a dangerous situation. Sometimes God delivers by moving a dangerous situation away from you. Okay? This is like that country song, I thank God for unanswered prayers. Where He moves the dangerous situation away from you. 
Whatever dart Satan throws at Israel, God doesn't allow it to land. He removed the danger from them, and He can do that from you as well. The Augustine in the City of God, it was a book that Augustine wrote way, 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 way years ago. Way, way, way many years ago. I think it's between three and 400 A.D. He was explaining to his people that they didn't need to be afraid that God had failed them because barbarians had sacked the city of Rome. And he says, God is still merciful because when the barbarians sacked Rome, they destroyed and assaulted everybody in the city. Even those that were in the pagan temples. But inexplicably, for reasons that nobody can understand, Augustine records in his book, The City of God, that they did not hurt anyone who was in a church. He said it, it didn't make any sense to any of us. But the barbarians were so moved for some reason by what they saw the Christians saying and doing that if you were in a church when the city was sacked, they didn't hurt you. Now that's not biblical, that's just historical. Not that the Bible's not history, but this is extra biblical history. Sometimes God just decides to remove a dangerous situation from you. 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. Uh, Jerusalem is under siege by Syria. And they had been for a while. Famine was setting in. And there were four leper guys sitting at the gate of the city. And they decided, you know what? If we go in the city, we're going to die of famine. If we stay out here at the gate, we're going to die. Let's just go surrender ourselves to the Syrians out there in their camp because at least they have food. If they let us live, then we live. If they kill us, we're going to die anyway. No big deal. So they get out and they go into the camp and they find all the tents set up. The fire's still going. Food's still sitting out there. And there's nobody in the campground. Why? 2 Kings 7, 6 and 7. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. God just moved the army. Just made them leave. Sometimes God removes you from danger. Sometimes God removes danger from you. And when He does that, give Him the glory for His power. So give Him glory for His mercy when He removes you from a dangerous situation. Give Him glory for His power when He removes a dangerous situation from you. But y'all, church, sometimes God delivers you. Y'all ever sing the song with your kids, you're going on a bear hunt? We're doing that? Going on a bear hunt. We haven't done that with Margaret because she's scared of bears. But famous song. You've probably always done it. And, and you finally get to the end of the song and he goes, you can't go can't go can't go got to go there is a third point to this sermon. <laughs> that sometimes God takes you out of a dangerous situation Sometimes God takes a dangerous situation away from you, but sometimes God just takes you through it. That doesn't mean He's not delivering you. That just means that sometimes that's the way He does it. In verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman and quit. Is that what it says? No, the dragon never quits. 
And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. When you jump forward into Revelation 13, 7, you get the dawn of Antichrist from Satan's point of view. And listen to what Revelation 13, 7 says. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now God removed ethnic Israel from Satan's grasp, but in Revelation 13, 7, He allows the church to be targeted. He allows the church, even in some cases, to be temporally overcome. Those Christians die at the hands of Antichrist. Revelation 14, 12 and 13. Again, remember, this is from Satan's point of view, but John and, the, John and his angels that are guiding him still editorially interject. And Revelation 14, verses 12 and 13 says, Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Which, by the way, is exactly the people mentioned in, in Revelation 12, 17. The woman's offspring are those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is those talking, that's being talked about in Revelation 14. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. That God does not deliver them from danger. He does not move danger from them. He delivers them through danger. Because Satan may kill the body, but I do not need to fear him who can only kill the body when he is not one who can also kill the soul. I am not as a pastor going to stand up here and promise to you that God will always get you out of that financial hole. He is not always going to get you out of that pink slip. He is not always going to get you out of that diagnosis. He might not get you out of it, but I promise you on the authority of this word and on, on my honor and my entire reputation, He will get you through it. Well, Josh, I thought you said he'd get me through it. I might die. If you're a Christian, I promise you, that's getting through it. Because on the other side of death for a Christian, there's nothing that can touch you anymore. To be absent from the body is to be present with the... There's no suffering there. There's no pain there. There's no defeat there. It is Satan's ultimate frustration that the worst he can do is temporarily kill a Christian because not even death is permanent for us. He actually can do nothing. And finally, Jesus is our great example who shows us this. Hebrews 12, 1-4. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If Jesus brings you to this is so cliche, but it's so true. There's a reason it's a cliche. If God will bring you to it, He will bring you what? 
It's a cliche for a reason. It's true. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That Jesus endured the wrath of His Father on your behalf. Every ounce of wrath that God could have ever poured out on your sin, He poured out on His Son Jesus so that you could have a relationship with Him and so that when Satan threatens you with death, you can say, is that all you can do? Now y'all, I'm not flippantly approaching death. I'm not flippantly approaching danger. But I do want to make sure that we don't shortchange what Jesus has offered us. Any of y'all know Fort Creek Baptist? Anything here in Thompson? Y'all know anywhere about that? Their pastor used to be named Tim Williams. He's still on the work for the Georgia Baptist Mission Board now. I'm good friends with Tim. I meet, I meet with a bunch of pastors every Tuesday. And Tim was counseling with a family member of his one time and was looking like, and this eventually ended up what happened, that unless there was a supernatural healing, uh, this woman was going to go die and be with the Lord. But he was counseling with her and he said, well, heaven ain't bad. I understand that death is painful. Every single one of us here has probably experienced it in some way or another. But man, let me tell you something. For somebody who knows Christ, y'all, heaven ain't bad. There is such a thing as being delivered through something. Sometimes it's death. Sometimes it's just endurance. And you come out with a testimony to say, man, let me tell you what Jesus did here. But that doesn't mean you haven't been delivered. Christ has done everything for you. So that you can look anything Satan throws you in the face and say, that all you got? Mark enjoys your Bible in a couple verses of an invitation here. And I just want to ask you, do you know the Lord Jesus?